Names matter. Names are important. I mean, not just the names of people, but, but names of things in general, they matter. So for example, when, when you're naming your child, you want to consider how will this look on a business card someday? Is this, is this name something that they would want to use to introduce themselves as a functional adult? Yes or no? I read earlier this week that someone over the last year actually named their child, and this is true, Pandemica. Yeah. Pandemica Popovitz doesn't sound like a successful professional to me. Names matter. Uh, for example, when you're, when you're naming a new sports franchise, you got to think, how is this going to look on a jersey? Can people shout this in an arena? Uh, there's a new NHL team that's going to debut this year, the Seattle Kraken. Now, I think that's a really cool name. I think that's going to work really well. And even if you don't like it, you have to admit that it's better than what is the world's worst mascot and worst name, the Stanford Trees. <laughs> that's literally it, the Stanford Trees. Also, not the best choice for a state that battles wildfires, just saying. All right? Think about it. Names matter. Names are really important. You want it to sound good. You want it to fit the person and the personality. It needs to describe appropriately the thing that it's ascribed to. And so that's why this morning uh, we're looking at a name, a title given to Jesus. In Greek, it's kurios. Uh, we often translate it as Lord. Kurios is the Greek word for Lord. And, and Jesus is referred to as kurios or Lord almost 500 hundred times, 500 times in the New Testament alone. Jesus is called Lord more than he's called Savior, more than he's called Messiah, more than he's called Rabbi, he's called Lord. This is his preeminent title. This is his other name. It also just so happens that this is some of the greatest proof of the divinity of Jesus, at least of the fact that the earliest Christians saw him to be God in flesh. Because it was no small deal for a first century Jew to use the term, the name, Lord. It wasn't a word that they took lightly. And to understand why, you have to go back into the Old Testament and look at a bit of Hebrew. So when God introduces himself in the Old Testament, he gives himself a name. He names himself Yahweh, which... Roughly translated means the one who is. But over the course of time, Jewish people began to think that this name itself, the literal name, was so holy, so pure, that it couldn't be on human lips. And so they stopped saying it all together. And so rather than say Yahweh, every time it was supposed to be spoken, every time it was written in a scroll, they used a different word. Because they didn't want to say Yahweh, they used a different Hebrew word. They used the word Adonai, which is the Hebrew equivalent of Lord. And so then it follows that over the course of time, that word, either Adonai or Kurios, the word Lord equaled something very specific in the hearts and minds of first century Jewish people. To say Lord was to say the name of God. Lord equaled God. So in Exodus chapter 20, which we just read, let me give you an example of this. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. If you look at the original text, it actually says, I am Yahweh your God. But the habit, the tradition developed to say, Lord, instead. 
So when Jesus is called Lord 488 times in the New Testament, what are they saying? Are they saying Jesus is a good teacher? Are they saying he's a wonderful moral example? Are they saying he's someone that you should strive to be like? Well, certainly we should, but they're saying so much more than all those things. When they say 488 times that Jesus is Lord, what they're saying is he's God. He's the fullness of God. Because after all, we believe still, Exodus 20, that there is only one God and it's Christ. He is the king of all things. He's the leader of all things, the ruler of all things. He is Lord of all things. That's what they were saying. And so what I want to do is just dig a little deeper into the implications of confessing this truth, whether you're a first century follower of Jesus, I don't think we have any of those in the room today, or a 21st century follower of Jesus. How does it actually change or should it change or shape our lives to confess this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is this, that in the first century and even still today, to confess Jesus as kurios, to say Jesus is Lord, is an act of cultural rebellion. Now, you might think that that's a strong thing to say, but, but, but it's true. It's an act of cultural rebellion. Again, in the first century, to say Jesus is Lord, if you were a Jew, it sent shockwaves through your little world. Into your Jewish family, the, most of whom probably did not yet understand who Jesus was, did not have faith in Jesus, to ascribe that title in terms of worship to anyone or anything was scandalous. You're calling it God. And then remember, this is a world ruled by Rome, the leaders of which demanded that they be seen as deities upon threat of death. So you had people like Caesar who would say that you needed to take a pinch of incense every day and burn it in your home while you said the words, kurios Kaiser, which is Greek for Caesar is what? Lord. That was commanded. Burn some incense, say Caesar is Lord. You can have your gods as long as you recognize that he's God. When Domitian became emperor of Rome, he claimed a special title for himself. The title in Latin was this, Dominus et Deus Noster, which translates our Lord and our God. So Christians then not only refuse to do this, they not only refuse to say these things, but you can understand how like Thomas's confession of faith when he sees the resurrected Jesus is not just a proclamation of his faith, but it is a very purposeful and explicit rejection of all the other things in the culture laying claim to that title. Remember, Domitian, around the same time, is saying, no, my title is Lord and God. And what does Thomas say in verse 28? Thomas answered Jesus, my Lord and my God. To say Jesus Christ is Lord in, in, in the first century was an act of rebellion. And I would say that it still is today. It's just that most of us and most of the world has lost sight with what, of what those words actually mean. You see, when you pray those words, when you come to church and you sing those words, when you tell the people that you believe those words, you're not only saying something about who you believe Jesus to be, you're making a statement about what everything else in the world is not. When you say Jesus Christ is Lord, what you're saying is, my politics are not my Lord. 
Uh, what you're saying is that my, my liberal or conservative tribe is not my Lord. What you're saying when you confess Jesus Christ as Lord is, my country is not my Lord. My career is not my Lord. Even my family is not my Lord. Not my bank account, not my passions, not my sexuality, not my journey towards self-actualization, not my love and obsession with me. None of the things that we celebrate and we sacrifice for in this modern world, none of these things are Lord. None of it's Lord. I'm rejecting the Lordship of everything other than Christ. That's actually what you're saying when you say Jesus Christ is Lord. And I tell you, if you really had a grasp of what you were saying, and the world had a knowledge of what you were saying to its face, there would be much more resistance. To say Jesus Christ is Lord is an act of rebellion. But it's also, it's also an act of submission, which is something we really don't like in this day and age. To confess Christ as Lord is to confess that he is, and this is the other way that kurios could be translated, is to confess that he is master. And so if you're saying, well, Jesus Christ is my Lord, then the implication is that you are what? If he's master, you are servant. The Greek word for that is doulos. If he is kurios, you are doulos. If he's the Lord, then you're the servant. And to be a servant is to say, my whole life is not my own. My life, my, my breath in my lungs, my possessions, like everything I am actually sits at the feet of the one that I serve. Now, you want to talk about a countercultural idea today. You see, we live in a day and age where, where freedom is one of the lords that we worship. Now, don't hear me wrong. I love freedom. I'm a big Fourth of July guy. Love freedom. But we live in a time where freedom becomes an idol. And I know you think, well, how can it be? Oh, it can be. Just watch what happens when you or anybody else does something that in the eyes of the rest of the world squashes somebody else's right to do whatever they want, however they want. When you do that, when you get in the way of someone else's right to do whatever they want, however they want, in whatever way in which they define it, that is the gravest of cultural sins in our day and age. Now, certainly our God values freedom, but, but our God understands freedom in a very different way than we do. The Christian faith defines freedom not as the absence, the absence of rules or restrictions, but, but our God defines freedom like this. It's not about grabbing all of the rights and privileges you possibly can. It's about having the right relationship. You see, what the rest of the world can't see, because kind of the scales haven't fallen from its eyes just yet, but what you can see by the power of the Holy Spirit is that everybody has a Lord. In the words of the great prophet Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It's not a matter of if you'll have a Lord, but which Lord do you have? And so in the context of the Christian faith, real freedom, real liberty is found in submitting your whole life to the right Lord. You know, Christians sometimes wonder what they would do if it ever came to the point where they were threatened with death unless they, unless they walked away from their faith or denounced Christ. Maybe you've wondered about that. You read some of the stories of like the first or second century and you think, my goodness, these people are under the threat of death being told that they need to renounce Jesus. What would I do? What would I do? I've thought about that. 
Now, now, thankfully, we are a long, 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 long way from that in our day and age, no matter what anybody tells you. Uh, we're a long way from that. But I've thought about it. What would that, what would that be like? Now, I happen to think that, that most followers of Jesus would do well under that pressure. I think we would. In part because God explicitly promises to give us his Holy Spirit in those moments, to give us words in those moments, to give us strength to stand in those moments. And I think he keeps that promise. I, I think the much more difficult thing is not the heroic act, single act of confessing Christ. I think the, the more difficult thing are the thousand little acts of daily submission to Christ. And that's the place where most of us, myself included, we prove ourselves to be really, really unfaithful. I mean, it's one thing to say that he's Lord. It's another to submit your weekend to him and be here on a Sunday. Congrats, by the way. <laughs> or to submit the way in which you want to treat that guy at work that you can't stand. Or to submit your priorities as a family, to submit the spending of your money, the trajectory of your career, to submit any of these things that the rest of the world says you can make them your, your lowercase l lords. To submit any of these things to the Lord, that's a really, really hard thing. But what I know about myself, and having been a pastor for you know, 16 some odd years to a whole bunch of people who are sinners just like me, is that there is at all times at least one, if not 20 different places in my life and in your life where you build a little fence around something and you say, Jesus Christ is Lord of all except for this. Jesus Christ can have his way in my life in this area, in this area, in this area, but I've built this really nice like wrought iron fence around this particular area, and I, I'm king of that. I'm lord of that, and that area might be, it might be how you spend your money, it might be how you spend your time, it might be all the secrets you keep that you don't confess, that you don't share with anybody, it might be the trajectory and the obsessive nature in which you've lived out your career, it might be any number of things that you say, I get to be lord of this. You're lord of almost all except these things. And yet to confess Jesus Christ as Lord is to say all of it's yours. Not easy. A part of following Jesus is it means that every day you do a little bit of fence finding in your own life. And you just try to tear them down. It's also a call to stewardship. Now, this is a connected idea, I admit that, but it's, it's one that really has to be pointed out. So not only is confessing Jesus as Lord an act of cultural rebellion, not only is it a life of total submission, even though we really struggle with that, uh, but it's a call to stewardship. Psalm 24, verse 1 says this. It says, the earth is Yahweh's, translated, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Everything belongs to God. None of it belongs to me. None of it belongs to you. Everything, and if Jesus is Lord, it means everything. All the objects, all the stuff, all the possessions, all the, the substance and stuff of life, it all actually belongs to him. You see, there's a realization that followers of Jesus are supposed to make when they see that he's Lord. It also means that he's owner which means you're steward of everything. Lordship means ownership. 
which means my life is simply stewardship. I don't actually possess anything completely. I am at best a momentary manager of all the little gifts that God gives. And this understanding shapes how you go through life, at least it should. So again, the earliest Christians, they let this understanding of the lordship of Christ shape all of the stuff of life that they had, and because they were in a day and age where there was no, no strong economic system, there was a lot of poverty and inequality, uh, what they did, knowing that all of their stuff actually belonged to Jesus, is they said, well, it's not really ours, let's sell a bunch of it, let's pile the rest together, and let's make sure everybody has a little bit of something. So Acts chapter 2 says this, all the believers were together, and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. Why did they sell it? Because they knew it wasn't theirs. Because once they knew Jesus was Lord, they knew he was owner. And they knew, I'm not, they knew I'm not the owner. I'm just a steward. And then they give to anyone as he has need. And I would say to you that as you let this idea really sink in, it adds peace and purpose to your life. Just think about it. How much energy is spent on a daily basis for you and for me, like being anxious or being worried or being concerned or planning about how to deal with or get more or manage our stuff? Like a lot of time. My son the other day was like, Dad, I can't wait to be a dad because I'll spend my money on fun things. I was like, son, no, you won't. This is what I actually said to him. I said, son... Uh, you will not spend your money on fun things unless your idea of fun is new tires for the car and flood insurance. <laughs> Welcome to being an adult. But, but here's, and you might think that this is way too kind of pithy or trite, but it is true. This is what this looks like. As you, as you delve back into your life after this Sunday of worship, as you delve back into your life, what it means is looking at your life and saying, this is not my car that I'm stepping into. This is Jesus' car. This is his house. This is his money. Uh, these are his kids. None of it's mine. And that perspective adds peace because if it's his, then it's his to worry about. It's his to be anxious about. And after all, that's what Jesus himself says. Why do you worry so much about what you have and what you're going to wear and what you eat? The Lord clothes the lilies of the field. Do you not think that you're worth more than a flower that's here for a day? Come on. If it's his, then it's his to be anxious about. So like when you go home later today, like here's how adult life works. You think you have your Sunday afternoon planned. You're gonna go home today, you're gonna watch a little football, it's gonna be easy for you, but you're gonna go home and you discover something's broken. Because something's always broken. And this thing that's broken is gonna require some of your time and some of your money. And here's what you get to do, because Jesus Christ is Lord and he's the owner, you're just the steward. What you get to do, and it really is this simple, is rather than immediately jump on fixing it or buying a new one or complaining about it, what you get to do is you get to actually pray. Now, I'm not saying you kneel down in front of the dishwasher that doesn't want to work. What you get to do is, as you're dealing with the thing, you get to say, Lord, what would you like me to do with this? I'm going to need you to help me find someone on a Sunday to fix this. Lord, you're going to have to help me figure out how to pay for this. And because it's the Lord's, he will. That's what it looks like. And, and his answer might just be, hey, why don't, you, uh, why don't you let it be broken for a while? Teach the kids how to uh, dry some dishes by hand. They need to learn that. And maybe you could use that 400 bucks to bless somebody else. Maybe you could do that. He might just lead you there. 
You know, this is an aspect of discipleship that so many people, especially like Western American Christians, we never delve into this, even though it's all through the scriptures. We look at all the stuff of the world, and we translate Psalm 24, verse 1, very differently. We look at the world and we say, the earth is mine, the fullness thereof, all that dwells in it belongs to me. And we look at our kids and go, what do I want to do with my kids? We look at our money and go, what do I want to do with my money? We look at our house and say, what do I want to add to my house? What do I want to do with my career? Followers of Jesus ask a fundamentally different question. We don't ask that question. We look at all the things, and because we know that Jesus is Lord, and Lord equals owner, and ownership means I'm in stewardship, we look at everything else and go, what do you want to do with it? What do you want to do with it? And he will probably lead you to a place that you wouldn't have gone otherwise, just saying. That's what it means to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. To confess Jesus Christ as Lord is also an invitation to imitation. And this is really what makes the lordship of Jesus so like otherworldly and beautiful. You know, unlike every other lowercase lord in this world, Jesus is a lord who uses his power and his position to love and to save and to serve. I mean, he's God in flesh, come to earth, and he sets all this power, all this glory, all this privilege aside, and he hangs out with the least and the lowliest. He's washing feet. He's homeless, just wandering around, telling people about the love of God that's broken into the world through him. He's hanging out with really questionable characters. He's willing to ruin his reputation just so he could be known as the guy who loves unlovely people. And then he's willing to die on a cross And we're told it's the sacrifice for all the broken, evil things in this world. And then he rises out of our collective grave and he gives that victory to all of us even though we don't deserve it. That's how he uses his lordship. And then what he says to all of us who know him and who believe in him is he says, here's how you serve me. You don't bring me money. You don't bring me gold. You don't... You don't get me more power. Here's how you serve me. You love like me. You sacrifice like me. You reach out to the unwanted and the lowly and the least like me. He he says, you can be like me, though I am the Lord. Now, again, think about that in the context of today. Our world is full of all kinds of lowercase l lords who are saying, follow me, imitate me. And the lines are long and the crowds are big of people who want their influence and their wealth and their power and their wisdom. But the thing about these other lords, these lowercase lords, is that if you try to imitate them, what you'll find eventually is that you never arrive. You can never quite become like them. You can't. You can't get there. And yet, the crowds are big and the lines are long. And yet, it's a losing game. But then the real Lord shows up. And he says, you can actually be like me. You you can do what I do. And the crowds are small and the lines are short. Which, which line are you in? Which crowd are you clamoring to be a part of? You can be like your Lord. You can love and serve like he loves and serves you. Names matter. 
names are really important. They need to sound right, they need to fit, they need to properly describe the thing that they are ascribed to, and that's why the name Lord is so perfect for Jesus. We could spend a lot of time talking about what the implications were for first century followers of Jesus, but the big point I'm trying to make with you today is this. We can talk about what it means to them to say Jesus is Lord. What does it mean to you? To say it, to confess it, to look like, what does it mean to you? What it means is you, you reject all others. You submit all things, you steward all gifts, you imitate his love. That's what it means. William Willimon, the, the pastor and theologian, he, he, he wrote one time about a parishioner of his who was dying a man who was kind of rarely at church, kind of always on the fringes, but never really fully committed to, uh, it seemed, Christ or the church or anything like that. And yet as he was dying, he called for Pastor Willimon to come to him and see him. And when the pastor came to see him, this man told him a story that Willimon said haunted him for his life, haunted the pastor. Uh, the man told him that early in his life, he had seen what he believed to be a vision of the resurrected Jesus. M much like Thomas's encounter in the Gospel of John, he saw Jesus, resurrected, appear to him, holes in his hands and everything. And it was as vivid and real as anything else he'd ever experienced in life. But he told the pastor that up until that moment on his deathbed, he had not told anyone that he'd had that experience. And Willimon asked him, why haven't you told anybody this until now? And the man looked at him and he said, I didn't want to tell anyone because I was afraid that it was true. And if it was true that Christ is real and Christ is Lord and he appeared to me, then I would have to change everything about my life. And so I told no one. Christ is real and he is Lord and he has come to you It's not an easy life to reject all things, submit all things, steward each gift, and to imitate him in love and sacrifice. It's not an easy life. But my question for you to wrestle with is, would you step just a little bit deeper into that life? Just a little bit. It's not easy. But what you might find is that it's better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and that he is Lord of all. It's hard for us to fully wrap our hearts and minds around that truth. We, we struggle to submit all things to him. We struggle to, to even remember him on a daily basis. And yet we confess right now that, that we want to understand it better. We want to submit ourselves. Uh, we want to experience the joy and the freedom that comes from laying every single thing at his feet. We do believe that that's where freedom and joy and peace is actually found and having the right Lord. And we believe that Jesus is it. Uh, so help us in that, Father. And along the way, remind us at every step that we get to do this because we're loved and saved, not for love and salvation. 
Help us to know that grace and mercy goes before us and behind us and all around us as we seek to live with our whole life in submission to Jesus. We thank you for your son and we thank you for his name, that he is Lord, and that that name in our hearts means he is above all. Amen.